Amen. You may be seated. And as you're doing so, I do invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah, chapter 6, for the text this morning. You can also find the text in the insert or in, on the next page in your bulletin, um, along with a brief outline of today's message. We have been considering the solas of the Protestant Reformation over the past several weeks now, noting how they were more than theological truths. They are truly biblical principles. Or, to put it differently, how we understand the need for the Scriptures, for grace, faith, the work of Christ, and God's glory is the gospel message. And the gospel message proclaims all of these truths. And today's sola, soli deo gloria, is the capstone, if you will, in that it takes all of these truths we have studied thus far and puts it in its proper context. All that we have said must be done to the glory of God alone. There is nowhere else we can look, there is no one we can look to, not the Pope, not the church, not our own very, very own lives, and give credit for who we are and what we have other than God himself. For God's plan was from the beginning to carry out his will through the power of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And we have to be careful when we consider this topic, for far too often we think too highly of ourselves and too little of God. The true purpose, I would argue, of the church and of our very lives is to glorify God rightly with our thoughts, words, deeds, and actions. And we can be assured that He will be. And the beautiful thing about it, and we'll see it in a moment in our text, is while he deserves all of the glory, while he deserves all of the honor and all of the praise, while he deserves everything, God then turns around and gives it right back to his people that they too might be glorified in him. What a beautiful concept. What a savior. You will find no other religion understands God, understands man, and has such a loving God as Christianity. To that end, let us turn to our text this morning. We're going to see this in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6 specifically. I will be reading for us the first nine verses. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. And with two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me. For I am lost. 
For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say this to the people. Just as the rain falls upon this earth and waters the flowers, God promises that his word goes forth and will accomplish everything he has set out for it. Let us go to him now in prayer and thank him for this time and ask his blessing upon it. Dear Heavenly Father, as we approach the topic of your glory, this morning I pray that we would be overwhelmed. I pray that we would leave this place after studying your word with an overwhelming sense of your presence and your power and your might. May we be in awe of you. And just as in the life of Isaiah, may that awe transform us from the inside out. May that cause us to want the things of God and to desire the ways of God and pursue the paths of God. This can only happen if your spirit wills it. And so we ask, O Lord, through your Holy Spirit, awaken our hearts, our minds, our ears, that we may not only hear your word today, but may receive it and live it out in the coming week. We pray all of this in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen. The book of Isaiah has been quoted as the fifth gospel of the Bible, preceding Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We have the prophet Isaiah called by God and given a difficult task. I know many of us like to think that the job we've been given, the life situation that we have is difficult. I would say that Isaiah's might just compare to our own. He was to write to the Jewish people proclaiming the indictment against them and speak of the coming judgment. In fact, if we were to continue reading in Isaiah 6, he would say, go and preach so that they will not hear. Speak so they will not listen. Proclaim so that they will see and not know and understand the truth, lest they believe and be saved. Isaiah was, in some senses, a judge for the people of Israel. And his proclamation, or God's proclamation through him, if you will, was hard. And yet, at the same time, this book, maybe more than others in the biblical canon, is a book of hope. It's a book of hope because in this book of indictment, in this book of challenge, there is a faithful remnant. There's a faithful few who will remain steadfast even through captivity, even through persecution, even through difficult times. And to those people, Isaiah says, a Savior is coming out of the stump of Jesse, will come forth a root or a shoot, and that shoot will grow into a mighty tree. 
and will indeed be the Savior of the world. We are given hope in the book of Isaiah that the coming Redeemer will fulfill the promises made in Genesis 3. And today, I want us to look at a snapshot of this wonderful work focusing specifically on God calling Isaiah into ministry. It is through this vision that Isaiah has that we come to appreciate the holiness of God. One of the best ways to understand the need to give glory to God alone is to consider why he's worthy of that glory in the first place. We're going to see that and accomplish this from three truths in our passage. First, we will see that God's presence radiates glory. We'll find that in the first four verses. Secondly, we will see man is incapable of receiving glory in verses 5 through 7 as a response. And then finally, we will conclude that God brings glory to man through his sovereign will in verses 8 and 9. Let's start at the beginning and recognize that God's presence radiates glory. I don't know how recently you have read the book of Isaiah, um, but it is quite interesting that for the first five chapters, it jumps right into judgment. It jumps right into condemnation. There's five chapters of This is who you are, and this is what you have done, and this is the consequence. And then chapter 6 almost abruptly interrupts that path. And it's interrupted with the introduction of the narrator, of Isaiah himself. And it's quite interesting when you think about it. We're told of Isaiah, who he is and what God has called him to do. It's his credentials, if you will, and and is a very unique way of defining these. There are some details that I don't want us to miss. This book was written, or this um, vision took place at least, when King Uzziah died. Uh, This dates the book to somewhere around the mid-8th century. And this is an important data point. I I think far too often in our um, lack of appreciation for uh, biblical history, we overlook texts like this or genealogies. I know that I am uh, prone to that as well. But if you were living in this time and you knew that Uzziah was king, and you knew that Uzziah died, that's a a historical marker. That is a, a stamp. That is a pin mark on this location, at this date, for this purpose, that you would go, well, of course, I know that that happened. I know that that took place. That gave credence to what Isaiah was saying. It gave credence to this book. It gave credence to what was going to come next. And not that it needed it, but that's just another one of God's blessings, that he gives us these moments, these scenarios, these uh, tiny facts that we could look back to and go, yeah, that did happen. That assures me that this really is true. And we're told what took place in that year in the life of Isaiah. In that year, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. So Isaiah is seeing the throne room of God and all that surrounds it. God is described here as high and lifted up with a robe that fills the temple. 
speaking to the totality of God's presence. Even from this first sentence, we should be struck with the grand nature of God. God is pictured as a great king who sits upon a great throne and wears a great robe. And as we zoom out from that immediate picture, the grand nature of the scene continues to unfold. God has attendants or angels surrounding him. Isaiah describes them as follows. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, two covering their face, two covering their feet, and two flying. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, I want you to think of something as we consider these creatures. These are angels who did not follow Satan in the great rebellion. They remained loyal to God. Would you want to see one? Would you want to stand in the presence of these angels? Now, before you answer that, remember, every single time, if not every, almost every single time a human has an interaction with an angel in the biblical literature, what do they do? They fall on their face in utter fear and terror. Why? Because angels often represented God's presence, God's judgment. We get to the book of Daniel, and I don't even want to see those in heaven. I mean, I'll just be honest. They are terrifying. Angels with wheels and eyes, and it just it paints a, a very scary picture, doesn't it? It, it, it paints a picture of, of God's mind and God's creativeness that we can't even grasp. And yet it's these angels who are so concerned with God's holiness that they cover their face in his presence, they cover their feet in his presence, and back and forth, day and night, over and over and over and over and over again, they cry out, God is holy, God is holy, the earth is full of his glory, praise to the Lord of hosts over and over and over again. Their created purpose is to remind anyone who is within earshot of the throne, make sure you know who is sitting here. Make sure you understand whose presence you are in. Make sure you know where you are, for you're in the presence of a holy God. And this was so startling, this was so grand, that we're told the foundation of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. Now, I remember um, when I was in school and we were taught to prepare for earthquake drills, um, that sometimes the most secure place in the house was the door frame, that uh, we were actually told to get in the door frame because it is uh, the most reinforced place. Now, we didn't have a lot of um, earthquakes um, in Mississippi, so I may be totally wrong on that. Um, if someone um, knows a little more than I do, let me know. But there, there's this idea that structurally, this is a safe place. And yet we're told here in the text, the voice of the angels, not even God's voice, the voice of the angels is so grand, is so filled with holiness for God and holiness for God's presence that it shakes the foundation down to the doorpost. And if that wasn't enough, the whole temple is filled with smoke. And what does that remind us of? Of Sinai. 
of Sinai as God's presence descended from heaven onto the mountain. And the people of God were told, you do not come to this mountain or you will die. Do not approach me. For they couldn't stand in the presence of God. How? How can we read this and not conclude the angel's conclusion? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. I'm struck even by reading the majesty of this text. And then back into our story, Isaiah was there. He saw in this vision firsthand this great throne room and witnessed the majesty of God. And it came from God himself. Not the throne, not the angels. It came from God himself. And I'll say this. We must be very careful in our theology to not make God small. Many people today have such a low view of God that he could almost fit into a pocket and go anywhere only to be pulled out when it is needed or convenient. Many treat God like a cosmic genie or a break glass in case of emergencies. And one day all of us and the popes and the priests of the time of the Reformation, all of us will stand before God and account for all the glory and credit we took for ourselves, and didn't give it where it belonged. We'll have to answer for that. How, how are we going to answer? How are we going to stand in that presence? How will we even be able to get an audience before that God? Well, my prayer is that we do what Isaiah did. That we respond just as he responded because he is a man who understands his place. He begs for mercy. Let's look at our second section to see that man is incapable of receiving glory. Isaiah knew from standing in the presence of God one inescapable truth. He had no right to be there. The weight of his sin became unbearable in light of the scene. And he says, woe is me. I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord. As John Calvin comments on this verse, he says, The prophet therefore means... He was so terrified as to resemble a dead man. Certainly we shouldn't wonder at this. For the whole man, so far as it relates to the flesh, must be reduced to nothing. That it may be renewed according to Christ. Whence comes it that men live, that is, imagine that they live, and are swelled with vain confidence in their wisdom or strength, but because they know not God. When you know God, you will know yourself. When you rightly know who God is and what he came to do, and I argue we can't perfectly this side of heaven. We are incapable. But when you even get a taste of that, you will understand your own life, your own heart. Being in the presence of God revealed to Isaiah his own sinful condition. I am an unclean man and I live amongst unclean men. Isaiah cries out in fear, for God had every right to strike him dead right there. Sin in his presence, uncleanliness threatening 
to taint the throne of God. And God will have nothing to do with it. God will not let sin stand in his presence. And while one path of recourse could have been to destroy Isaiah where he stood, we see something different take place. Something truly remarkable. One of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. He touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. The book of Leviticus speaks very carefully about the altar of God and the fire that is to be present there. Aaron's sons, in fact, were struck dead for defiling the altar of God by mixing in strange offerings. It's from the altar of God that this seraphim takes a burning coal and touches the mouth of Isaiah. And as he does so, certainly on God's command, he declares him clean, his guilt removed, and his sin atoned for. Note, what is Isaiah's role in all of this? What happens when a man is aware of his sin and rightly stands in the presence of God? He cowers in fear. And then God makes him clean. God declares him righteous. God declares him guiltless. God atones for his sin. God saves this man. The purifying fire of God rested upon Isaiah and declared him clean. And it was not a mistake that the angel touched the lips of Isaiah for what was he about to be? The mouthpiece of God. I will clean your heart and I will clean your mouth and then you will be my ambassador. You will speak truth. You will speak accurate words. You will stand before the people and be my mouthpiece for I have cleansed you inside out. Every aspect of Isaiah's life and his coming ministry was set straight right here in this one moment. What do we learn from this? Well, for starters, we must learn to hate and fear our sin. We should take seriously the weight of our sin and the consequences that it deserves. God has every right to strike down Isaiah where he stood and yet he was declared righteous. Isaiah could not save himself. He was at the mercy of God. Man cannot declare himself righteous no more than he can declare himself glorious. Man cannot demand honor. Those are gifts from God as God sees fit. And even if in this life we do achieve anything that is honorable or that brings us glory, we have to remember we're created in God's image. For Him, by Him. And so even the things we have that are good and honorable, that are worthy of celebration, are really reflections of God Himself. We must humble ourselves and not take for granted the blessings we have. And if we do receive honor, if we do receive glory, if we do receive praise, we must deflect that where it belongs. And that is to God and God alone. I want to turn to the final section of our text to see 
something truly remarkable. As if it's not been a remarkable enough text, what happens in this last section really does drive home who God is. We've seen the glory of the Lord on display. We've seen Isaiah's inadequacy to sustain himself before the Lord. And the two mark a contrast between the glory of man, or the glory of God, excuse me, and the incapability of man to receive or produce that glory. You've got God in his glory and man in his weak, sinful state in need of salvation. And even when salvation comes, it only points to the glory of God. But the text is not in there. God speaks. Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? God issues a call that all may hear. Who will be my representative? Who will carry out my message to my people? The angels are silent. The angels that just carried out this act of salvation upon Isaiah from the Lord, they're silent. They don't respond. They will not be God's mouthpiece. They will not be God's representative. And so we're left wondering who's going to do it. I like to feel that there's a momentary tension or pause here, but we don't get one before immediately, as the question is asked, we get an answer. Here I am. Send me. What a turn of events. What a different response to what happened earlier. And to emphasize that, the first word of God's response is, go. Go. God commissions him. God sends him. God authorizes him. Go and say this to the people. God affirms Isaiah's desire to represent him before the people. God gives credit to his willingness to serve as a herald of the Most High God. It's important for us to think of two truths as we hear this call and this response. First, Isaiah's narrative changes from uncleanliness to boldness, from fear to eagerness. Why? Because the Lord God declared it. The Lord declared Isaiah clean. His angel touched his lips with the purifying fire and said, Thus, you are forgiven. Secondly, when standing in the presence of the Lord, Isaiah can only think of his shortcoming and failure. He knows his sin and the sin of his people. We saw how he fears for his life while standing in the presence of the Holy Lord. And yet after he's declared righteous, there's a completely changed man. It's not that he forgot his sin and the sin of his people. It's that he saw it in a different light. And how did he see it? I see my sin in terms of a forgiven man. Not a man who is condemned, but a man who has been forgiven. And then he turns his thought, he turns his mind, he turns his heart to those people that he left behind, those unclean-lipped people. And he knows the only thing that can declare them clean, the only thing that can declare them righteous, the only thing that can declare them forgiven is that cleansing fire from the Lord that he just received. And so when God asks, we barely even get through that sentence before he says, Here I am. Send me, O Lord. I will go. For I have been forgiven. And I will be the voice of forgiveness. God's glory poured upon Isaiah transforms this man into the prophet we read about and listen to over the course of this book. 
He boldly proclaims God's judgment and God's promise to keep a remnant faithful. Do you think Isaiah would have done this before God cleansed him? Do you think that it's intentional that God waits to give him the message until after he declares him righteous? How would he have responded if God in his presence said, all right, Isaiah, go and proclaim judgment to the people. And he fell on his face and said, well, woe is me. I deserve that same judgment. No, God declares him clean and then says, go. And this becomes the pattern for us today, dear believers. Peter tells the church, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6, Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, says to the crowd, Blessed are the meek or humble, for they shall inherit the earth. It is clear throughout Scripture we're called to submit ourselves to God and to God's goodness. This is what we must take away here. We must have a high view of God's holiness. We must have a high view of our sin. Anything else, we will be tempted to give too much credit or too much glory where it does not belong. As we have considered this morning this final sola, sole deo gloria, I pray that you fully appreciate our need to give glory for all that he has done. Isaiah could no more go to the people on his own than he could stand in God's presence and live. But for God declared him clean and righteous and then said go, he went and spoke truth and hope to a lost and dying world. And that message still is read and heard today as we've read and heard this morning. Isaiah was a prophet in a string of prophets who spoke to the people calling for God's remnant to endure persecution and difficulty. Dear church, are you part of God's remnant today enduring persecution and difficulty? Are you one of the recipients of this message? Are you part of his plan for this world? Are you people that need to hear, stay firm, stand fast? Remember, you have been forgiven by a holy God. And for that and that alone, you will endure until the end, for I will endure. Ultimately, we would see God's glory on full display in Jesus Christ. All of the prophets speak to that day that would come, the day of the Lord. All of the prophets speak to that one, the seed of Jesse, that would live a perfect life. And that was Jesus. He who knew no sin became sin, that we might be called the righteousness of God. If you're trusting in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, then you have been made alive. You have been brought back just like Lazarus was. In fact, it's far more remarkable that your sins have been forgiven than that Lazarus was raised from the dead. For what is easier, but that my glory might be displayed. You are healed, you are clean. The refrain of Jesus Christ. You are now a living testament to the marvelous grace of our loving Lord. And by your life, again, the angels and your brothers and sisters around the world and throughout history are crying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and evermore shall be. May we join them in that refrain. Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, we humble ourselves before your majesty.
We know our temptation to take glory for ourselves or place it where it does not belong. We know the sinfulness of our heart, and far often we don't doubt you. We doubt ourselves, and we need to be reminded that this is a work in you. Just as Isaiah was passive in his salvation, so are we. We trust in you, we rest in you, we accept your finished work for our lives. And in turn, may we proclaim solely Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory. Help us to live out every day in light of these truths. And may we never take for ourselves which belongs to you. We thank you, O Lord, that you allow us to share in this plan and that you glorify us. For we are your children, created in your image for good works that Christ did beforehand that we might walk in them. We thank you for this time of worship, O Lord, and pray that you bless it and that you use it in all of our lives. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.